You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Today we're going to begin a a new three-part series of messages on the topic of how to make a difference in this world, how to be a difference maker. I don't know if you remember back when 3D movies were a thing in the theaters. We were given an opportunity to do something that was really quite amazing. We were offered a chance to save the world from the theater. I don't know if you remember these, these bins. Uh, Who knew that you could save the entire world from the comfort of a movie theater? All you had to do was put your 3D glasses in this bin. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's a great idea. I think these these, uh, glasses that no one's ever going to wear in public need to be recycled. But it just struck me as that's a little overstated, saving the entire world by doing this. Now, why would they attach that line to something as simple as recycling your plastic 3D glasses? Well, it's because it resonates with us. Down deep inside, we all have this sense that we're supposed to be making a world of difference and that maybe even just the small things we do can really make a difference. And we all have this sense that the world does need saving in a bunch of different ways. One of my early attempts to be a difference maker in this world occurred when I was 20. I was living in Detroit, Michigan at the time, and along with a few friends, we decided that we wanted to make a difference in one of the the poor neighborhoods that were close by. So we uh, went around door-to-door and offered to to help, and it turned out there was a lot of elderly people in the neighborhood who couldn't take care of their yards, and so we did yard work and odd jobs, and I still remember the day when one of the the men that we were helping said he didn't have any food and asked me if I had any money. I had a $20 bill in my pocket, so I took it out, and I gave it to him so he could buy food. And then I watched him walk across the street to the liquor store and use that $20 to buy lottery tickets. I discovered that day that saving the world was just a little more complicated than I thought it was back when I was 20. And honestly, I was was pretty disillusioned by that. And I kind of, honestly, I just stopped trying for quite a while. And my suspicion is I'm not alone in that kind of experience. I think a bunch of us have tried to do a number maybe of different things. And it Turns out that it hasn't worked the way we thought it has, or it kind of backfired, and so we stopped believing that saving the world is possible, or that we can really have any vital role to play in the endeavor that is as audacious as saving the world. So being a difference maker, for us, for most people, is kind of relegated to the realm of fantasy. We go to the movies to watch heroes save the world in two hours, and then we return to our small and relatively insignificant, but rather comfortable lives. But God really does want to use your ordinary life and actions to make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. The desire to make a difference in this world is accurate. It's true. Now, let's be clear. None of us can save this world. It's too big, and its problems are too complex, and we're too small. But we can be a small and yet significant part of the larger work of what God is doing to rescue people from this broken world. Now, the theme verse for this three-part series is Romans 5, verse 8. You probably noticed these cards sitting in the, or in the chairs when you sat down. And it contains the theme verse for this series, Romans 5, verse 8. And I want you to take these cards with you, and I encourage you to carry them with you and pull them out from time to time during the days in the next three weeks, and my goal is that many of us would memorize this verse over the next three weeks. So that's the purpose of these cards, but let me begin by reading this verse 
Uh, first of all, Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the centerpiece of how God is saving our world, how he's rescuing people. If you have ever wondered whether God loves you, this is the answer. And the answer is not just a statement of love. We are very familiar with statements of love. God has made statements of love, but this is a demonstrated action of love, which carries far more weight than any statement. The answer to the question of does God love you was demonstrated in a real place and at a real time. It was in that moment when Jesus died on that cross for us. And the reason he did that is because sin is a killer. It kills every good thing that it touches. And then eventually, it kills us, the sinner. But Christ died in our place to absorb that, that, that particular death that sin has earned and to forgive us and to give us a new kind of life. And that life begins to reverse the deadly effects of sin in our life right now. So, does God love us? Yes. What's amazing about this verse is that he did all of this, not in the moment when we began to turn around for the better, not when we began to improve, and not when we began to sin less, but while, it says, we were still sinners and still are sinners. So God is changing this world one sinner at a time, you and me and those around us. So the question we're going to address in these three weeks is, what could we possibly do to be an active and real part of that great mission? We're going to identify three ordinary, everyday ways that God has invited us to be a part of his work to save this world. Today we're going to look at the difference that our story can make in changing this world. We love good stories. Humanity always has loved stories. In this country, we spend about $13 billion a year buying novels to read stories. Before the pandemic, it's unclear what movies will do after the pandemic, but before the pandemic, we were spending about $20 billion a year going to the theater to watch good stories. So we love stories. And the Bible, it turns out, is a book of stories. But it's not just any storybook. It's really the story of God and how individual lives in the past and now our lives in the present can be changed by God's great story. Stories have the power to move us like really nothing else because stories put the individual pieces of a person's life on a plot line. It makes sense of the individual moments and experiences of a person's life. And that's important because we all really want to know that our individual days can add up to something, not just random time. And stories tell us that our days really can add up to something. We can be a part of a plot line, something that matters. But the problem is very few people pick up the Bible and start reading it. And that's why, that's where you and I come into the great plan of God. It's as we tell people about how God has changed our story, that they begin to hear about God's story. It's often the way people hear about it first. So this morning we're talking about two ways that you can make a difference with this theme of story. The first is this, learn their story. Learn their story. In other words, take an interest in the stories of people that God puts 
on your path. The difference between the people that you care about and the people you don't care about is the ones you care about, you know their story. It's impossible to care about somebody and know nothing about the history of their life. The opposite is also true. Even the most irritating and challenging people can begin to make their way into our hearts if we take the time to learn about the journey that has brought them to this point. Story draws our hearts to others. The thing about stories, though, is that they take time to hear. And we're often too busy to ask someone's story or to listen to it if they begin to tell us their story. But that was not true of Jesus. Jesus would often pause and stop to take an interest in someone's story. If you read through the Gospels, you can see this for yourself. But let me give you a couple examples. In John chapter 4, he stopped to talk to a woman at a well. What did they talk about? Well, we don't have the transcript of the whole conversation. We do know they began to talk about water and thirst because, well, they were at a well, and that's why they had both come. So that's where the conversation started. And then we get little bits and pieces of the conversation, but near the end of the story, this is what the woman says about her conversation with Jesus. She tells her friends, come and listen to this person who told me everything I ever did. Now, I don't know that they talked about everything she ever did, but it felt like that to her. Jesus took enough of an interest in her to talk about all kinds of pieces of her story. Another example is in Luke 19. Jesus was pressed by a large crowd. At this point, people had heard of his power to do miracles, and the crowds were pretty massive. And so he was moving forward slowly, pressed by this large crowd, but he stopped under a tree and looked up at a man who was sitting in the tree because he was just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And he says this to Zacchaeus, who was the one in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I imagine the whole crowd thought, well, what are we going to do? We're here to see you too. But Jesus took an interest in this one man, and he went to his house. He said, I must go to your house today. Why? We're not told, but it's fair to assume it wasn't just because Jesus was needing a nap. He was taking an interest in Zacchaeus' life. Now, this kind of thing happened so often that the religious leaders of the day made this observation about Jesus. It's found in Matthew eleven nineteen 19, and many other places. They referred to him as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this was not a compliment. This was a put-down. Because what they were saying is, if he really is from God, why is he picking such bad friends? This is not where you get good friend material, tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't know where your friendship need is right now personally. You may be kind of at the top end, have all the friends that you need, or you kind of may be at the bottom end and maybe running low and in need of some more friends. But what Jesus was doing by example was showing us that we need to look at friendship differently than we tend to look at. We tend to look at friendship primarily from the need standpoint, the need we have for friends. And that's important and that's okay, but Jesus was challenging us to go beyond just that. This is how we tend to view friendship. Here's a picture of a bucket. It represents the need that we have for friends. Now, we all have different friend buckets. You know, some of us need less friends, some of us need more friends. And it's influenced by 
personality, maybe life stage, situation you're in. But the point is that once the bucket is full, once your friendship bucket is full, you're not really looking for any more friends. You have enough friends. You have enough. Your needs are met. And because this bucket represents the need side of friendship, we tend to put a filter over the bucket and only allow the kinds of people that will really benefit us, that we really like and click with to make it through this filter. The people we don't agree with, we don't click with, we have a limited bucket, so we're not going to put them in our friendship bucket. Now, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the, the pool of people that you click with becomes more and more like you. And this is the way all of us are, whether we're Christians or not. We kind of gravitate to the groups of people that we connect with. And so as followers of Christ, not only is your number of friends limited by the size of your bucket, but it's also limited by the pool of people that you're willing to be friends with. And the problem with that is that those who are far from God don't make the cut. And we don't follow Jesus in this way, and we're not looking to be friends with people because either we don't need any more friends or we don't want that kind of friend. But that's not what Jesus did. One of the things we're all aware of that's happening right now is people are moving out of our state. We've had people from Seabreeze move out of state. And that's fine. I've heard a lot of good reasons on the part of many people who are moving out of state. But there's one statement I've heard several times that I just have to say something about. The statement I've heard several times here at Seabreeze for people who are moving out of state is I'm moving to be around my people. And that bothers me. There's a term for that in our nation right now. It's called the big sort. Everyone's moving to the places where their politics is similar to what they, what they want, people who vote like them. And the problem with that is that's not what Jesus did. Jesus hung around sinners and tax collectors. Now, in the state of California, we don't have tax collectors, but we do collect tax. <laughs> and a lot of people are moving because they're getting away from the tax collectors. I don't know for sure, but I suspect if Jesus arrived in America, I don't know where he'd move. My guess is the West Coast or the East Coast. I have a lot of friends in Texas um, who I talk to and say, how can you stand living in California? And I, what I say often is, hey, anytime you want to join us here on the front lines, we could use the help. <laughs> and, of course, that bothers the Texans because they don't like being called cowards. And I'm not saying that everyone should... <laughs> I'm not saying everyone should move from Texas. <laughs> everyone needs to be where God calls them to be. But I just want to warn all of you, if you're thinking of moving out of stake because you want to be around your people, you will stand before Jesus, and I don't think he'll be pleased with that answer. Because he has us here to be friends with sinners and tax collectors. That's what we're here for. And if we're going to follow Jesus in this area, we need to be in continuous search mode for new friends. Not because we have a need for new friends, but because they have a need. Like Jesus, we need to be in continuous search mode, searching the horizon of our day for people that we can walk over to, extend a hand of friendship, well, maybe not now during COVID, a fist bump of friendship, 
a few words of interest and a listening ear. And like Jesus, we need to see far beyond who they appear to be right now to who they might be if God got a hold of their lives. I mean, just think of where you'd be or where I'd be without the gift of Jesus Christ. In order to see people, we need to hear their stories. This friend of Sinner's thing really got under the skin of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So they kept devising traps for Jesus, situations that would require him to show some kind of moral blood pressure. How can you hang around sinners and stand that sin? So on one occasion, they brought a woman to Jesus who had just been caught in the act of adultery. And the law at the time required that she be stoned to death. So they brought her to Jesus and said, Jesus, what should we do? And you can just see them thinking, we've got him now. He's in a trap because if he says she should be forgiven, then they've got him for being weak on sin. And if he says, well, then we need a stoner, then what about all the forgiveness he's been talking about? So they had him. They got him in a corner. You can just see them thinking, let's see this friend of sinners wiggle out of this one. So here's what we read about this situation in John chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If anyone of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And as you continue to read, one by one, they left and said nothing. Now, what's interesting, Jesus didn't excuse her sin. In fact, later, he says, Is there anyone left to accuse you? And she says, No. And he says, Well, then I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. So he didn't excuse her sin. He didn't ignore her skin. But what he did is point out the fact that this woman was not that different from those men who were pointing the finger of accusation. No one knows what Jesus was writing on the ground. I'd love to know, but God in his wisdom decided we wouldn't know for now. So I have suspicions. I suspect that it was the names of the men who were standing there and next to their names was some recent sin they had committed, maybe even adultery. And when they saw their names and they saw the sin next to them, they realized, uh-oh, I'm going to be the one accused if I hang out. i got to leave. That's my guess. I don't know. But I think the point is this. At any point in time, we can look better than somebody else. These men were looking better than this woman. But if you read our entire story, every page of it, there are pages that are cringeworthy where none of us look that good. And it's our stories that show us that while there's a lot of differences among us, we all struggle with sin. We're not that different in many ways. You see, people don't just wake up one day and decide to be the way they are. They follow a storyline day by day to arrive where they are. We encounter people at a certain point in time on that timeline. And so what we're seeing when we see someone is we're seeing just a snapshot, just an appearance of their life. And if we evaluate that snapshot and move on because, well, we have nothing in common, what that means is we're not seeing them. We're just seeing the picture. They are a movie. They're moving and have been moving. So we need to take an interest and learn their stories. If it's someone new, start with surface-level stories. Where'd you grow up? What do you do? 
Do you have any kids? Who are the important people in your life? Just, and as they tell your story or their story, look for commonalities. Oh, I used to do that, or I lived there once. Whatever it is. So once you hear their stories, listen to their stories, then we get to the second point. Tell your story. If you take an interest in their story, there's a chance they might be interested in yours. Now, let me tell you, about my experience is it might take a while. What I've learned is I can ask people 15 questions about their life, and they'll never ask me one. That's just generally the way we all are. We're interested in us. But if you really take an interest, there's a greater chance they'll be interested in yours. Well, tell me about you. And if it's hard for you to take the time to listen to someone else's story, you can just assume that they don't have a lot of time to listen to your story. So be brief. Don't launch into an hour-long version. Well, and then when I was three, oh, my goodness, and they peel off. So what part of your story should you tell them? Well, early on, I would recommend that you get to the best and most amazing part of your story, the part where you encountered Jesus and he changed your life. Now, if you don't have a story like that, then you don't have a story that can change someone else's life and eternity. You may have an amazing story. You may have an inspiring story. They may have done a documentary on your story. And it may inspire people, but it's not going to save anyone because only Jesus Christ can do that. So the first question that we need to ask of ourselves is, do I have a story like that? A story that I encountered the truth of Jesus, I decided to follow him, and he changed me. If you don't, that's okay, but then talk to someone who does have a story like that and find out how Jesus might change your story. And if you don't know anyone with a story like that, let us know on the connection card that Elliot was talking about. There's a box where you can check. I've, I've got some questions about this. We'd love to reach out to you and help you find more information about that. But if you do have a story like that, a story of how Jesus has changed your life, then the second question is, what has Jesus changed? This is going to be part of the story that you tell. This points to a before you encountered Jesus and decided to follow him, and after. What was different before from what is now true of you after? In John chapter 9, we read an amazing story. It's a before and after story of a man who encountered Jesus and was completely changed. He was blind before he met Jesus, and after he met Jesus, he could now see. He was blind from birth. That's a significant change. The story is found in John chapter 9. Here's the first three verses of that story. As he, speaking of Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the question is interesting. This man is blind. Who sinned, this man or his parents? The assumption that the disciples had, that most people have, is that if something bad is happening to you, it's because you've done something bad. Or maybe your parents did something bad, and now you're paying for it. Now, it is true that when we sin, when we do bad things, there are real consequences, and those consequences don't always just stay with us. They oftentimes bleed over into the next generation. But Jesus makes it clear there's another reason behind why God allows bad things to happen in our life. 
And what he says is, the other reason is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. If there's part of your story has got some bad parts to it, one of the purposes behind that is that God wants to write a story with that. If you read a story and there's no drama, there's no ups and downs, it's a boring story. If you're reading a story and, and there's, oh, no, oh, no, you know, this might be a good story. Or it could be one of those artsy stories that just gets worse and worse and you end depressed. <laughs> but if it's a popular story, good things happen out of the bad. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so this guy was blind and then he was seen. Okay, I don't have an amazing Jesus story like that. I wish I did, but I don't. But that is not what Jesus thinks about your story and mine. Just before he heals this man's eyes, Jesus says something interesting. This is what's recorded in verse 5 of John 9. He says this, and it seems like it's just kind of out of the blue. Like, what does this mean? He says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And you just see people standing around saying, what? Are, are we going to heal this guy or not? What is Jesus doing? He's talking about spiritual blindness. <coughs> And his real mission, his mission is not to heal every sickness. He healed a bunch, but that's not his main mission. His main mission was to address the deeper problem of spiritual blindness. He said, I'm the light of the world. And the reason he healed physical ailments is to prove that he could heal the deeper, more important spiritual ailments. So basically, he said this. So that he could let everyone know, I'm about to heal the physical blindness this man has to prove that I can heal the spiritual blindness that all of us have. And the point is that this story is not just an extreme, you know, unique story of Jesus' work. It really is the template for every story of change that Jesus brings. Every person, including me, that Jesus has saved can honestly say, I was blind. But now I see, which is what this man said after he was healed. I used to think, for me, I could get enough, if I could just get enough people to like me, the emptiness would go away on the inside. That's how I was navigating life. I was like a blind person, bumping around, looking for someone to approve of me. But now I see that only God's love can really ever fill that emptiness. I forget it sometimes but I know better now. Jesus demonstrated his love for me, and it opened my eyes. How about you? How has Jesus opened your eyes and saved you? You know, God has a purpose behind your past. You may be embarrassed by your past. You may be hurt about your past. You may be guilty about your past. But God wants you to tell others about it so that they might see beyond their past. You know, we like to tell stories that make us look good, right? But the story that needs telling is the one that makes God look good. And that story starts with the fact we're not that good because we're blind spiritually. Now, when you read this story in John chapter 9, you'll notice that it's, it's full of questions. I encourage you to go back and read the story. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but if you read through it, I, as I read through it, I, I counted 11 questions that people asked in response to what Jesus did. All kinds of questions came as a result of this story. There are questions about, who is Jesus that he could do this? There's questions about, where did his power come from? And many more questions. 
And I think this is one of the reasons why we don't want to talk about our Jesus story to others, because we know it's going to raise questions, like it did here. And if it starts raising questions, it's not going to take very long for someone to ask us a question about Jesus that we don't know the answer to. I mean, I've gone to school, and I can answer a lot of questions, but there's still some questions I have to say, yeah, I'm not really sure. So you're probably sitting there thinking, I, I don't want anyone asking me questions about Jesus because I don't know. And that's why a lot of people just don't tell their Jesus story. But the thing I love about this story is the blind man gave the perfect answer when someone asked you a question about Jesus that you don't know. You know how you answer that? John 9, 25, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Get back to your story. And I've often said this, you know, I'm not really sure about that. I can look that up for you if you're really interested, but, but what I do know is what's happened in my life. And just keep getting back to your story. This is the power of your story. You are the expert. No one can dispute what you've experienced. No one can look at you and say, no, that didn't happen. It's my story. It did happen. Your story matters. And you don't have to know all the answers because if you just tell your story, that will make a difference. The story of what Jesus did in the life of this blind man has an impact far beyond him. It's another interesting thing to see is the different people around this blind man and how they responded. If you, if you look at his neighbors, it's got his neighbors thinking about Jesus. They really hadn't been thinking much about Jesus in this way before, but it got them thinking. People that knew this man. Verse 8 says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? So they started asking questions. What's going on here? We know this guy. He can see? How did that happen? It got the religious leaders divided in their opinion about who Jesus was and how he could do this. Verse 16 talks about their response. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, because he healed this man on the Sabbath day, and that was in violation of their law. But others had a different opinion. They asked, well, then how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They had different opinions about Jesus. And one of the most interesting responses, they got his parents running for cover. You know, his parents were brought in for questioning, and it was clear, as you read their response, they didn't want anything to do with this. And we're told why, in verse 22, his parents said this, which basically is, we don't know anything because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their social standing, and so they were like, uh, I know our son can now see, but we saw nothing, we know nothing, we're out of here, because they were afraid. Now, I go through these responses because if you tell your story, you can expect similar kinds of responses. Some people will be curious, and they'll want to know more, like the neighbors of this man. Some will get nervous and run for cover, like the parents. And like the religious leaders, some people will be divided about your story. Some people will be upset by it. Some people will disagree with it. Some people will agree with it. And this, I think, is another reason why we're tempted to keep our stories to ourselves. But the story that you have does not belong to you. It belongs to God. He's the one that wrote that story. It is your story, but God owns the rights. And therefore, in his understanding, you don't have the right 
to be silent about what he's done in your life because he did it. Why was this man blind again? Jesus said so that the works of God might be displayed in him. How did that happen? Jesus healed him. It's the same with us. God saved you and me from our spiritual blindness, and he did this. We didn't do this. Why? So that we might be, the idea here is we might be kind of a display case of what he can do. Our story isn't just about us. It's about God. It's his story, too. And if we don't speak up and tell our story of what Jesus has done in our life, then we put a big sheet over the display case, and no one gets to see the greatness of God and what he might do in their life. So this brings us to the next question. What do I say? Rather than explain what to say, I want to just take a brief moment to show the video that we showed on Easter of people here at Seabreeze giving a 15-second version of their story. This is a great template. I would encourage you to think through this if you haven't done this before. When we showed this on Easter, we had a number of people saying, where did you find that online? It's like, these are people at Seabreeze. These are people we know. These are stories we know. So let's take a look at this. Yeah. Go ahead. There once was a time in my life when I was addicted to drugs and had no hope. There was a time in my life when I was overcome with anxiety and a need to feel in control. But then I was forgiven by Jesus and I chose to follow him. And now my life has stability and joy. Do you have a story like that? There once was a time when I was very anxious and angry at my parents. But then I, get, I got to know Jesus and decided to follow him. Now my life has a lot more peace and hope. Do you have a story like that? There once was a time in my life when I was deceitful and selfish, but I was forgiven by Christ and decided to follow his ways. Now my life has openness and patience. Do you have a story like that? There was once a time in my life when I dealt with anxiety and worried about things I really couldn't control. Hypocrite. Kept lots of secrets. Afraid of failure. Filled with guilt and shame. Uncertainty. Shame. Bitter. Perfectionism. Workaholism. Unable to love myself and others. Lived for my own glory. Worried about what people thought of me. But I found Jesus. Uh, I asked him for forgiveness and accepted him into my heart. And then I was forgiven by Jesus and I started to follow him. Was forgiven by Jesus and decided to follow him. And now I am filled with contentment and I feel safe in his arms. Peace. Joy. Now I want to live for God's glory, peace, freedom, compassion, comfort, peace, contentment, more honest with myself, more honest with others. Jesus has taken my shame away, hope for the future. What about you? Do you have a story like that? 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 Do you have a story like this? There once was a time in my life when I was addicted to drugs and had no hope, but then I was forgiven by Jesus and decided to follow him. And now I've been clean for nine years and have an eternal hope. Do you have a story like this? We might just show that every week for the rest of the year, so. <laughs> if you have a story like that, then think through how would you tell it in 15 seconds like they did? 
And then the final question is, who can I tell? Your story can impact and change the people around you, those you work with, even people here at Seabreeze. Your story is a story that God wants to use to change the world and make a difference in this world. So I encourage you again to take these cards with you on the seat and memorize Romans 5.8 over the next three weeks. So let's, um, let's read it together. We'll put it on the screen, or you can follow along with the card. Let's read this verse together. Read it together with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to invite uh, a team that's heading to Germany tomorrow, uh, representing us uh, on a missions trip there. We're going to be partnering with um, a ministry that we've been partnering with in Europe for a number of years. Uh, it's called Connection. And God has used this ministry we partner with uh, in Europe to tell the story of Jesus and his love on college campuses, college campuses in Germany, Spain, and uh, now in the Netherlands. So this team, uh, they're heading out tomorrow to fly to Frankfurt, and they'll be hosting a large conference uh, with these college students from these different places. And this is a tremendous opportunity for us to be of service to them. So I want you to know about this. I want you to see them. Uh, we have prayer cards look like this. They're on the uh, exits. You'll see them just sitting off to the side. You can grab one of these prayer cards so you can pray for this team. Uh, there's a little more information about what you can pray for them about, so I encourage you to take one of these cards, uh, pray for them while they're gone. But I wanted to pray as a church for them uh, before they head out, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, the privilege to not just live our lives for ourselves, but to be a part of what you're doing to change the people in this world. We thank you for how you have changed us and are changing us. And I pray for this team as, as they go that you would give them opportunities across the culture to share their story, to be of real service to the Connection Ministry as they host this conference, as they lead worship and provide all kinds of support. It's going to be a lot of work. I pray that you'd help them. You'd give them stamina and energy, uh, even though it's going to be a quick trip with a, a lot of flying time. I pray for um, the children that they're leaving behind in the care of others, that you would provide protection for them. I pray protection for this team as they fly uh, in this season of COVID. I pray for protection for them from that. And Father, we just ask that um, this investment would, would bring about tremendous change in the lives of people uh, there in Europe. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.